if you don't have a confident expectation of an afterlife, you might want to get all your bragging done in the here and now. Past achievements don't mean very much if there's nothingness after death. And frankly, they don't mean very much if you've rejected the free offer of salvation by grace through faith alone in Christ alone. But if you know that you have eternity before you, and you know just how you're going to get there, and that's that it's through the work of somebody else, through the work of Jesus Christ, then you might be a little more inclined to refrain from making your personal exploits a subject for discussion over lunch. And that's where Paul finds himself in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. In the Greek religious system, there was an afterlife, but it wasn't a real happy place. In the Odyssey, the ghost of the hero Achilles told Odysseus that he would, and I quote now, rather be a poor serf on earth than lord of all the dead in the underworld. So there, there was an afterlife, but it wasn't a real positive place to be. In light of that, boasting about one's accomplishments while one was still alive was a significant part of Greek culture. And that makes sense. If you're wandering around forever in a shadowy, uncomfortable underworld, who really wants to listen to you brag about how you were once a great military hero? It's like, we don't care about that. But if you're Paul, and you know you're going to be evaluated at the judgment seat of Christ, and you know it's going to be a fair evaluation, and that you'll have a blessed eternity to discuss the service of the Lord that you were blessed to do with other people, then you might want to hold off. So in this chapter, when we find Paul actually boasting about things that he's been privileged to do on behalf of Christ, it really causes us to sit up and take notice. Because it's totally out of character for him. My point is, in this introduction, if it had been just the Corinthians boasting, it wouldn't have been out of character for them. But for Paul, when he boasts, we need to stand up and take notice because this is outside the norm. But the situation in Corinth was a bit outside the norm too, wasn't it? After Paul founded the church in Corinth, a group of troublemakers came in behind him, disparaging both his character and discounting his teaching. There's no question that this got Paul really worked up. And I don't blame him. Not one bit. He had poured his life out in the service of the Lord Jesus Christ to these people. And then people come in behind him and knock his character, knock his teaching, and they believe it with no problem at all. And that had to be rather insulting to the Apostle Paul. He poured his life out, and in return, the Corinthians ridiculed him and maligned him. He's a lousy public speaker, they would say, and he's not much to look at either, and that's really a low blow, isn't it? He can't speak, and he's not very good looking. Well, that's really a good argument to make, to, to refute his arguments. In fact, there's no argument at all. He's not really very bright, they would say, too. He wasn't, he's not nearly the philosopher that the Athenians are. But because Paul loved his master, and that's key to understanding this passage, because he loved the one for whom he worked, he put up with it. And because he loved the Lord Jesus Christ, who loved the Corinthians, he was able to not quit on them and to come right back and serve them for Jesus. Most of us, if they were in Paul's position, would have just quit. 
they would have let this rowdy bunch just become the products of their own decisions. Let them find somebody else to preach to them. If they're going to believe these troublemakers, then let the troublemakers minister to these folks, but not Paul. Because first and foremost, he loved the Lord. And that's one of the first things we get out of this passage as a whole, these, these last several chapters, is the motivation for Paul's service was not the Corinthians themselves, although he does love them. The motivation is the fact that he loves Jesus Christ. And maybe we've been around Christianity for so long we've forgotten that, but that's why we do what we do. That's why we come to worship. Not because of our mother or father or brother or sister or husband and wife. We don't come to please them. We come because we love the Lord Jesus. And that's why we pay attention. That's why we sing joyfully. That's why we give liberally. Because we love our master. His response to this situation in Corinth and the troublemaker issue from beginning to end is dripping with divinely sanctioned irony or sarcasm if you prefer. Sarcasm is a little stronger word, so most of us prefer the word irony, but it's dripping with it. This is, to quote one New Testament scholar, irony of the sharpest kind. But his use of irony is not intended to injure them or to put them down. It's to motivate action. It's to affect a change. That's what he really wants. That would be success for Paul to see them changed. Murray Harris, Professor Emeritus at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, probably the second best seminary in the United States after Dallas Seminary, <laughs> but it is a good seminary, commented this. He said, Paul's irony, and I quote him, does not tear at the flesh. It delivers a jolt to the system and aims to correct attitudes and prompt remedial action. Paul is seeking to jolt the Corinthians into realizing how foolish they are in submitting so willingly to the abusive exploitation of the intruders. I think Harris says it right. These troublemakers are actually abusing the Corinthians. Paul loves them. He's ministering to them, but the troublemakers are abusing them, and he's going to say, you just receive them well. Somebody comes and slaps you in the face, and you turn the other cheek so they can slap that. That's not what Jesus had in mind. Not, not in this context. So as chapter 10 began, Paul wrote, Now I, Paul, myself, urge you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I who am meek when face to face with you, but bold when absent. You know what Paul's saying there as chapter 10 begins? He said, yeah, I heard that. I heard all about what you guys are saying. That, I, that I'm really bold when I'm absent, but when I'm with you, I'm a coward. Well, I heard that, he says at the beginning of chapter 10. Then as chapter 11 opened, he says, I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness, and indeed you are bearing with me. And then in chapter 11, verse 16, our, as our passage begins today, he says, Again I say, let no one think me foolish, but if you do, receive me even as foolish, that I may boast a little. Paul wasn't foolish, of course. But the way he puts this indicates that there were some people in Corinth that thought that he was foolish. Receive me, if only as a fool, Paul's saying. Whatever you think of me, please accept me. Now the readers should have received him as an apostle, even though, ironically, he allows himself to become a fool, or to be called a fool, so that they would listen. You see, this is not about Paul's ego. If you'll recall 1 Corinthians and the early part of 2 Corinthians, that's one of the things they were saying about him. The troublemakers, 
you know that apostle, that Paul guy, that, well, I guess we could call him an apostle, couldn't he? But I don't remember him being there with Peter and James and John so much. But, but if he's an apostle, okay. But, but you know him, he seems to me he's just in it for himself. He's trying to make a name for himself. That was one of the things going around Corinth. He's foolish. So the fact that Paul has to bring this up, whatever you think of me, even if you have to think of me as foolish, please listen to me, means that some people were thinking of him as if he was a fool. And then in verse 17, he said, That which I'm speaking, I'm not speaking as the Lord would, but as in foolishness, in this confidence of boasting. Remember, boasting is outside the norm for him. Boasting is inside the cultural norm for the Corinthians, but it's outside the norm for him. We're, we're almost a couple thousand years removed from this. So when we hear people brag and boast, most of the time, we don't care for it too much, do we? Not, not in our culture. Of course, now, unfortunately, it's becoming more and more a part of the culture which is one reason why I'm having a harder and harder time watching some of the sporting events that I used to really enjoy watching because it's just a, it's just a boast fest. And last year, after the NFC Championship game, I almost swore off pro football altogether with the interview that Richard Sherman had with um, the Fox News reporter. It was just really over the top. It made me sick. Why not just say congratulations to our opponents? And, they just can't do that anymore. But, but remember, this is contrary to Paul's culture when he says, that which I'm speaking, I'm not speaking as the Lord would, but in foolishness, in this confidence of boasting. Now, don't take Paul wrong here. He does know very well. In fact, he wrote, all Scripture is God-breathed and is profitable. And that includes what Paul is writing and speaking in this paragraph. So he's not saying that I'm writing this apart from the inspiration of the Holy Spirit when he says I'm not talking like the Lord would talk, but rather he's saying that he's acting in a way that's foreign to the apostolic role that he enjoys when he plays a fool. That's, that's foreign to an apostolic role. An apostle should have been afforded respect. But Paul's saying, listen, I'll do away with the respect if you'll just listen to me. I'll be foolish if you just listen to me. I'll do what it takes if you'll just Listen to me. He's going to do whatever it takes to get their attention. Now listen to verses 18 through 21 as we really get into the passage itself. Since many boast according to the flesh, I will also. Now he's talking about the troublemakers now. For you, being so wise, bear with the foolish gladly. For you bear with anyone if he enslaves you, if he devours you, if he takes advantage of you, if he exalts himself, if he hits you in the face. To my shame, I must say that we've been weak by comparison. But in whatever respect anyone else is, or else is bold, I speak in foolishness. I'm just as bold myself. You can just feel Paul's frustration here. But remember, he's writing this under the ministry of the Holy Spirit. He's expressing this frustration to try to get their, to try to get their attention. It's almost as if, and he's not doing this, but it's almost as if he's, he's taking them and shaking them and saying, Listen to me. This is important. These people are abusing you. I love you. They're leading you down a bad path. I'm trying to lead you down the right path. Don't listen to them. But he's having to do it with his words, because he's not there, rather than his fists. That's not going to work. These verses introduce the boasting that Paul will engage in as he attempts, under the empowering ministry of the Holy Spirit, to cancel out the boastful claims of the troublemaker. We can only know what those boastful claims were by a mirror reading. I mean, we look at the text and see what Paul's saying. We can figure out what they were saying. They apparently thought themselves to be intellectual. 
they apparently thought themselves to be fairly good looking. They apparently thought that they, they themselves were really great public speakers and had a theology that was quite different from the Apostle Paul's. So what he's saying is this. Okay, all right, they think that they're really something else. Well, let's see. One more time, I must warn you, as we enter this territory, please remember, this is not something that Paul wanted to do. I'm sure he would have much rather written a letter like he did to the Ephesians or to the Romans, some sort of theological treatise that he could just outline his points. But that wasn't the situation in Corinth. And when we do ministry, we have to adapt ourselves to the situation in which we find ourselves. you got to know your audience. And you have to adapt yourself to that audience. You have to adapt your methods to that audience. One time when I was in England with my good friend Moses, I was supposed to do the Sunday evening service. When I went to a prayer meeting with the staff before we did the service at this church, one of the pastors there, I thought fairly abruptly, rather abruptly, said, listen, you need to lose the suit. He didn't say anything about, maybe you might want to take your tie off with this audience. He said, you need to lose the suit. And my friend Andy Patterson, who was there, said, no, listen, if Bruce is more comfortable preaching in a suit, then he let him preach in a suit. Give, give him a break. It was kind of interesting. I'm fixing to speak, and they're having this argument in a staff meeting about that. It didn't make me feel real comfortable, quite frankly. It's not the best thing to do to a guest speaker to make them feel uncomfortable right before they get up there. And then later on, the man explained to me. Actually, Andy explained to me later on. I lost the suit, by the way. I said, well, no, if that's what it takes, I'll lose it. What he explained to me was, in that particular part of Bristol, a suit and tie or a coat and tie was, was more high church. Well, okay, There's no call, there was no collar involved, but the coat and tie was high church. And he said, these people have been abused by high church over the course of their history. So what you're wearing really represents something that's abusive to them. That's why my associate pastor was saying, maybe you want, might want to lose the coat and tie. And the next time I preached there, I didn't have a tie on. I, I kept my coat, but I didn't have a tie on. At least, at least I knew why he was saying what he was saying. So we have to adapt our methods. There are some places, like in, in Nigeria, where they wear a suit if it's 105 degrees, and the men walk miles and miles to get there. I don't care how hot it is, we wear our suit. Now, that's just a small thing when we talk about adapting ourselves to the place that we are. We also need to adapt our language and our way of presentation. And this doesn't just go for people that are publicly presenting the Word. This goes for you in one-on-one -on -one evangelism situations. You've got to know who you're talking to, and you've got to love them enough not to give them a canned spiel. Have you ever been, sold, tried, somebody tried to sell you something, especially if somebody comes to the front door, you know, it's not knocking on the front door, and you, and you know they're going through a script. And I, I feel for those people because I was almost one of them when I went to college. I almost, I almost did door-to-door -door sales. And then they start going through this and say, listen, I'm really, really busy right now. I'm really not interested. And they don't even listen to you. And they're going right through, straight through their spiel. They get to the end of it and they make their pitch. And you say, well, I, I, I told you a little while ago I wasn't interested in that. But if they would have adapted their method, maybe I would have listened to them. Well, that's what Paul's doing here. He's adapting his method. We're married to the message, but we're only dating the methods. Some of us are not only married to the message, but we're married to the methods. And that's not the most healthy thing, spiritually. So we need to be careful of that. Paul was a perfect example. He wasn't altering his message at all, but he might alter how he has to get it across. And he's doing something, I'm really trying to stress it this morning, he's doing whatever it takes to get this message through, even though it's outside of his normal character. 
in order to do it. He's adapting himself to this audience. Paul's authenticity as a servant of the Lord is demonstrated by his faithfulness in suffering hardship. Now that's going to be what he's going to boast about. He's going to show them his authenticity, why they should listen to him, because he's going to boast now about some of the things that he had been through. I hope you see what he's doing. This passage has a message, and that's, that's the message for us too. Sometimes people will listen to us more effectively when we tell them about Jesus if they've observed us handling suffering well. And you know what I mean. So many times we don't, and we interrupt our testimony for Jesus Christ. And Paul's not going to do that here. Again, it's out of character for him to say something about it, but he's got to say something to get their attention. But Paul's going to show the authenticity of his ministry by telling you some of the things he's been through, and he's not complaining. It's one of the things that's been popular in Christianity for about 25 years, and it's always gotten underneath my skin when people complain, when believers in the Lord Jesus complain about God when he allows us to go through suffering. I just don't get it. Frankly, I don't. We're going to say, we love you, Uncle God, when you give us that Ferrari, but if I can't make my car payment, I don't even like you. I'm serious. You've heard it. People say it on the radio. They've written it in books as if it was justifiable. It's not. We're treating him like a rich uncle in the sky when we do that. He is the Lord of the universe. He's the creator. He's the one that sent his son to die for us, and he sustains us every moment that we're alive. So we need to handle these trials well so that when we tell somebody else about Jesus, then they have something to believe. But if we fall apart every time we can't make the car payment, or every time the weather's too hot or it's too cold or it's too wet or it's too dry, why would they believe us? But if they've seen us, if they've watched us go through difficulty, and not only do we not complain, but we praise God through it, then when we tell them about Jesus, they're going to listen. In fact, they're going to come to you and ask you about Jesus. They're going to say, how are you handling this so well? I, I would fall apart. You say, well, I'm glad you asked. Let me tell you how I'm handling it. I could never do it on my own. The only way I'm doing it is through my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I have a confident expectation of the future. And they're going to say, how do you have that confidence? And then you can tell them. But if you've ruined your testimony by falling apart in trials, and listen, we've all done it. Every one of us has fallen apart in trials. Now, not every one of us has blamed God for it, but every one of us has fallen apart. We've all failed. Let's get past that, pick ourselves up, and move on to the next one. We've got, I'm sure there'll be other opportunities for us to pass the test. We've all done it, but let's look to the future here. Paul uses this roster of hardship to validate himself as God's representative in a very real way. God was the one that transported him safely through each one of these difficulties that I'm about to mention. And that's the underlying message here. Now, with that, here's the boastful roster. And listen to this. This blows me away. As one who has done a lot, I mean, I've forgotten how many short-term mission trips I've taken. Let me just get it clear right now. I stay in hotels when I go on mission trip. I have transport to and from the airport. Uh, the biggest hardship I suffer is perspiration, typically. Exhaustion and perspiration. I want to tell you that right up front. Before we get into this list, I always stay a place that has a shower, and typically it always has air conditioning. So I want to tell you up front, 
This is not me. I marvel at what Paul had done here. And I'm not coming, I've not come close to getting beat up for Jesus. I came close to getting kidnapped. But other than that, I don't think I've come close to any of these things. There is some similarity here in this list with a previous list of, list of hardships that he did back in chapter 6, verses 4 through 10. I told you at that time we'd get to part 2 of the list when we got to chapter 11, and here we are. Back then, some of these things were featured twice. The beatings, the imprisonment, hard work, sleepness, this hunger. Those were mentioned back in chapter 6, verse 5 and other places, but now they're mentioned again. In verse 22, he's already said, I'm speaking foolishly, but listen to me. He's talking about the troublemakers. Are they Hebrews? In other words, are they Jewish people? Well, so am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they descendants of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I speak as if I'm insane. I more so. In far more labors, in far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death. That's a pretty good roster. Getting thrown in prison, beaten, times without number. That means he can't remember how many times he was beaten. I don't remember how many weddings I've done. And I don't remember how many funerals I've done. But Paul didn't remember how many times he was beaten. Now, I've taken a couple punches to the nose over the course of my life, and I can tell you the details about every single one of them. I remember those things, but it wasn't in ministry. You see, the point is, he doesn't remember. That shows his focus is on the Lord, not on the suffering. Well, that's not all. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. We're up to verse 24. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Now, the Jews had this system. The Romans did, too, from what we understand historically. But the Jews had this system, and they understood that 40 lashes often would kill a person. So they would give 40 minus 1. They'd give 39. So they'd take you right up to the edge and back off. Now, everybody's different. I'm just saying that was their cultural norm. That was their custom when they would beat people. They had customs for that. But what we see here is five times this happened. Now, Ordinarily, at least according to ancient writings, what they would do, they would beat a person 13 times on the back. They would turn them over, lying on the ground face up. They would beat them 13 times across the front. Then they'd turn them back over and beat them 13 times across the back. If I'm right with my math, that's 39. Five times. Now, he remembered how many times that happened. Have you ever seen those movies where it's a real shocking time when the hero takes off his shirt and he's got scars, you know, a bullet hole or a big scar across their chest and, and somebody looks and says, oh, wow. Can you imagine what Paul's torso would have looked like when he took a bath in one of those cities? It would have been scarred from lower abdomen all the way up to his shoulders, both sides, because my math isn't the greatest, a little less than 200, I think. There would have been 200 stripes on him if, if it happened five times. Wouldn't there be? Almost 200. And I don't see him complaining about it either. I don't see him saying, well, God's mean to me. No. He's still serving him. He still loves him enough to be writing this to a group of people that despised him. Uh, this, this is an example we should follow here. Listen, I know, before I get to the rest of the roster, I know there are people in this room suffering right now. You're suffering either because something's happening to you or because something's happening to somebody that you love or perhaps an entity that you love, like a nation perhaps, but most of the time it's much more personal. 
I know that you're suffering right now. Did you realize, though, when you woke up this morning and were suffering, handling it in the right way will be something that Jesus Christ remembers at the judgment seat? We think he's only going to remember how many times we witnessed to people or how many mission trips we went on or that Sunday school class that you taught or that generous contribution that you made to whatever ministry or, or helping with the music or whatever it may be. You think that's all he's going to remember? No. He's certainly going to remember how you handled the difficulties that were placed before you. And did you do it with contentment? I'm not saying laughing. Sometimes you can have contentment with tears in your eyes. Of course you can. But how did you handle it? Were you authentic? Did you live out the love of Jesus Christ in your life? By the way, back to the 39 lashes, uh, that, that's something that Paul used to do to other people. Have you ever thought of that? He did that to the Christians before he became one. And now he gets it five times over. Well, three times he was beaten with rods. Interesting thing here is Roman citizens weren't supposed to be beaten with rods. That was against their law. But he put up with it anyway for the cause of Christ. There was something bigger than his own personal comfort. And it was the spiritual, in this case, it was the spiritual growth of the Corinthians. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Now some of these things we know about from the chronologies in the book of Acts. This is one of the ones. He was stoned at Lystra, Acts chapter 14. Three times I suffered shipwreck. We don't know about all of those. But here, here we find out three times. We talk about how many auto accidents that we've had. And some of you, there's no joking here, because some of you have lost loved ones in, in auto accidents. Paul shipwrecked three times. Most time you died when you're shipwrecked out in the middle of the ocean. There was no Coast Guard to come get you. One time he spent the whole day, 24 hours, drifting, apparently on a piece of wood, I would assume, since there were no life jackets at that time. Spent a night and a day adrift in sea. And I'm not, i got to tell you, if this is a modern writer... He's going to say, and my faith was really challenged at that point. Come on. What do you mean your faith was challenged? That's when you better have faith, my friend. That's not better when you better start doubting. That's when you better have it. A dear friend of mine, very, very dear, he used to go to our church. He's with the Lord now, so I prefer not to mention to you who he is because I don't say this to disparage him anyway. He was a great great man, wonderful believer in the Lord Jesus. And he handled his dying process extremely well, every single step of the way, until about six hours before he passed away. I'd come to his home to visit him, and he got mad. He didn't get mad at me. He was mad at God. And his faith was shaky. He didn't know what he was doing. He just, he just was all over the place. And I'm thinking, of course, this could be some of the chemistry that's going on in his brain at the time. We, we know that. But I asked if everybody else wouldn't mind leaving the room. And just leave me with my friend. And they all gladly did because it was a very uncomfortable situation because he had never talked that way before. And when everybody was gone, I leaned over and I did something I don't really like to do ever, especially with a dear friend who I knew was going to be with the Lord at least by the next day that time. And I said, what are you doing? What are you thinking, talking this way? And I said, probably before the sun comes up here on earth, 
You're going to be walking across that golden high bridge, and it's not going to be me that meets you, and it's not going to be some of the other pastors he was mentioning that meet you. It's going to be the Lord Jesus Christ himself that walks you through that process. And you're mad at him now? You're fussing at him now? I said, this is the last time of your life you should be fussing at him. You better be clinging to him right now. And there were tears that were shed on his part and on my part, and it was fine after that. He finished really well, but, but it's almost like what Paul's doing here. He's having to shake him. almost had to shake my friend with my words, not, certainly not physically. But at, when you're going through these trials, that's not the time to start having your faith waver. That's the time to get strong in your faith, to, to become stronger moment by moment. You have a choice, don't you? It's going to happen one way or the other. You're going to face trials, and that's for sure. I mean, Paul tells us that in his letter to the Philippians. Because it's been appointed you not just to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. It's going to happen that you face trials. Because you live in a fallen world, all of us are going to face it. If nothing else, we're going to face our own death someday. Because sometimes it's going to come quickly, sometimes it may not. All of us are going to face trials. But the trials that we face are trials that we're either going to come out of stronger or weaker. You're going to face the trial. And you got the choice. What's the point of going through the trial and coming out weaker? When I was in college, and in high school too, but in college I played wide receiver. Wide receiver is kind of a glory position, but there's one bad thing about wide receiver. They run you across the middle. You go way up to catch a ball because the, the glory boy, the quarterback, throws it real high for you. So you all stretched out. And then some defensive back comes and just takes your belly and tries to break your ribs. Now you can do one of two things. You can either hold on to the ball or you can drop it. Either way, your ribs are going to get broken. So why not hold on to the ball and get the first down? Now, in a very small way, and it's not a perfect illustration at all, but a lot of us are going up for the ball, and you're going to get hit either way. Suffering's painful either way, or they wouldn't call it suffering. Why not hold on to the ball? At least you can, at least you can stagger off the field knowing that you did something positive. So that's what Paul is doing here. Once more, three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I've spent in the deep. I've been on frequent journeys, in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my own countrymen. Now that may be a reference to these people right now. Dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers amongst false brethren. Do you see what he did geographically there? He said, there's nowhere I can go. The city's unsafe for me. The country's unsafe for me. The sea is unsafe for me. There's nowhere I can go. And then certainly here, I, th I think it's a reference to the troublemakers when he calls them false brethren. Verse 27, I've been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights in hunger and thirst, often without food in cold and exposure. That's quite a list. It's something, quite frankly, I hope I don't have to go through. I'm going to be upfront with you about that. I don't like that kind of discomfort. Not at all. And you would think that that's where the list would stop, wouldn't you? Isn't that enough? It would be for me. That's, that's quite a roster, Paul. Okay, I agree with your authenticity. No question about that. But then he gets right to the heart of the matter in verse 28. Look at this. Apart from such external things. Or perhaps apart from those things that I just mentioned, there's the daily pressure upon me of concern for all the churches. 
This word that he translates concern is, is an interesting word. It's epistasis. And it means a state of prolonged concern or anxiety. You know, he lists these physical difficulties that he had been through. And they're rough. And then he tells this bunch that had given him such a hard time, you know, apart from all that, perhaps in addition to all that, you know the thing that stresses me out the most? It's concern for you guys. Concern for the Ephesians. Concern for the Philippians. Concern for the Thessalonians. Concern for the Romans. Concern for the people in Jerusalem. But especially you. This is one of the things that keeps me up at night, he's saying to them. You talk about stresses, this is one of the biggest stresses I have. I find it interesting that he mentions this in the same breath that he mentions all the other difficulties. You hope they get the message, and actually they do. Verse 29, he says, Who's weak without my being weak? Who's led into sin without my intense concern? The word translated there, intense concern, some of your Bibles may translate that without me burning with anger about it. Now what he's saying here is these false teachers are leading the Corinthians into a sinful behavior. And that chaps Paul to no end. That's what he's saying. If I could just use modern vernacular. That chaps him that these people are hurting people that he loves. Did you ever see that happen when your kids were younger? I know some, a lot of you have grown kids now. You know what I'm talking about. You, you did your best to raise them, and then all of a sudden you see somebody come by with a, with a pretty face or a nice car, male or female, whichever one, and, and you see them trying to undo everything that you've done with your child in, in, in terms of moral, morality and ethics, and, and you're thinking, stop that. So, but what Paul's saying here is, Who's weak without me being weak? Who's led into sin without my intense concern? Nobody. Now the weakness here is, is I think, empathy. This is more than sympathy. And I've heard it described this way by an English teacher, so I know she was right. She taught English. She said, sympathy is, is like being on a cruise ship and seeing someone being seasick and throwing up over the side of the ship, and you come and put your arm around them and say, I'm really, I feel sorry for you. Empathy is throwing up with them. We see... <laughs> Paul is empathetic here. Who's weak and he's not weak? He feels what they feel. Isn't that true when you love somebody? Don't you feel what they feel? If they're having a bad day, how often is it that on their bad day you're having a great day? If you know what they're suffering. Of course not. If you love them, you're feeling what they feel. And if they're suffering, you're suffering. And that's what he's telling the Corinthians. So then he says in verse 30, if I have to boast, I'm going to boast about my weaknesses. The troublemakers were apparently boasting about their strengths. And he's saying here something quite different. He could have never gotten through any of these trials without the help of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what he's saying when he's going to boast about his weaknesses. He's weak, but Christ is strong. He's going to elaborate on this in the next chapter. But he's saying, I'm weak, Jesus is strong, so therefore... I'm strong. Not because of me, but because of who I'm with. I'm strong. So again, he's boasting of the Lord. 
He's already said that if I need to boast in anything, I'm going to boast in Christ. So by mentioning all these things, the implication is God got me through them. Remember the testimony I talked about a minute ago. The, the implication is God got me through these things. So when I say God got me through these things, I'm not boasting about me. I'm boasting about the one that got me through these things. Back when I was about 13 or 14 years old, I moved, moved schools quite a bit. I was at Broadmoor Junior High School in Shreveport, Louisiana. And my first day of school, first or second day of school, we were out by this huge big oak tree. We were throwing the ball around. All of a sudden, this guy comes up and just pops me right in the mouth. I mean, honestly, I know my kids don't believe this, but sometimes I am totally innocent. I didn't have anything to do with it. He came and popped me right in the mouth because I was a new kid at school. The fight was on. But I look up, there's probably a dozen people there. All of a sudden, the fight stops. It's over with. And I look up, and there's one guy. I didn't know him. Later found out his name was Charles Turner. And he wasn't that big of a guy. Charles Turner. When Charles Turner came, everybody else stopped. And I looked up, and Charles just said, hey, instead of making it one on 12, how about two on 12? How does that sound to you guys? And they said, no, we don't think we want to do that. And Charles walked me at least down to the bio each day before I, you know, that's where I felt like I was safe. I walked home through the bio. Now, if I was to tell that story and, I, and you thought I was bragging about me, wouldn't you think I was a little foolish? No, I was the one getting whooped, all right? I would be bragging about Charles, wouldn't I? Because he's the one that got me through that difficulty. Charles Turner is the one that should be bragged about in that situation. Charles Turner is the one that should be prayed about because as we've grown up, Charles is an atheist agnostic and I can't seem to move him off of that. But I would be bragging about him. Paul's not bragging about himself when he talks about these trials. He's bragging about Jesus who got him through the trials. And that's why he makes a reference as this comes to an end. I'm sorry, in verse 31 to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus, he who is blessed forever knows that I'm not lying. In Damascus under the ethnarch, Aretes, the king guarding the city of the Damascenes in order that to seize me, and, and I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall, so I escaped his hands. Paul's hardly bragging about himself there. He's bragging about Jesus. Jesus is the one that rescued him because he had something more for Paul to do. God rescued Paul, and Paul knows it. God's rescued you. Do you know it? Well, do you? Or do you think somehow it's just because of your talent, your intelligence, your strength, your abilities in some way? Or do you know that it was God that rescued you? So who should you brag about if you've got an opportunity? The same one that Paul's bragging about. And that's Jesus. He's not ashamed that everybody knows that God's the one that got him through these trials. Paul's authenticity as a servant of the Lord is demonstrated by his faithfulness while he's suffering hardship. This is a tough roster. I think we can all agree with that. I wonder if Paul made this roster tough because we would always say, well, I've been through something worse. Maybe. But I know the God that got Paul through this is going to be the God that gets you through your situation. And the, the bottom line is, are you going to be authentic in the process? Well, his authenticity as a servant of the Lord was demonstrated by his faithfulness. And he could use this roster of hardship to validate himself in a real way, in a tangible way to the Corinthians. God was the one who transported him 
to safety. Each time. He's the one that got him out of the sea when he spent a day and a night. They gave him the wood to hold on to. That's the underlying message here. And again, I know I'm looking out at people today. Many of you are suffering. And some of you are doing it with a really straight face. But I know you're suffering because I know you and I know what's going on in your life. Some of you just don't want anybody else to know. Some of you can't help but other people, have other people know just because of the circumstance that you're in. That's okay. But as we close this morning, I want you to remember this. When we suffer, there's always a greater purpose in play. It's not just about giving you a hard time. There's something much bigger going on. And ultimately, through that suffering, God should be the one glorified. He's the one that's going to ultimately get you through it. If we can handle suffering in such a way that when the world watches us, they see something lovely and wonderful and magnificent about Jesus Christ and marvel at how wonderful God is, then in the end, wouldn't you count it as being worth it? Heavenly Father, we humbly bow before you today, and I know there are suffering people here with us this morning as part of our church family. And I pray for them. I pray that their faith would be strengthened, that they would keep their eyes upon you throughout the trial, and they would come through it glorifying you. We might not have to understand this side of heaven why a difficulty comes our way, but you know, and we know that you're going to be there with us as we pass through it. So help us to demonstrate our authenticity as believers in the Lord Jesus and the way that we handle difficulties. And we'll ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.